Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Thursday, October the 13th, 2011, and this is episode 762 of the Survival Podcast. Um, today we have a really cool show. I have a guy hanging on the line right now, Mr. Tom Hale, who was a member of the Peace Corps. Several of you have asked me why I include the Peace Corps folks in the MSB National Service discount. I think after you hear today's show, you'll understand why. And I think maybe it'll give you a new view of the Peace Corps and the survival skills uh, that people who have participated in this program often bring to the table. And, well, the ability they have to look at, unfortunately, what might end up being some of the future of the United States if we continue in our reckless ways, specifically from an economic standpoint. Before I bring Tom on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. What more can you ask for from a company than for their name to tell you who they are and what they do and then for them to do that, and that's what Ready Made does. All the resources you need for your preparedness, ready made and ready to go on their website, Point, click, and buy sent to you. Great to your front door with first-class service. Great pricing. And if anything ever does go wrong, Robert and his guys over there are going to make it right. You know, I like to deal with smaller companies. And uh, that's who I've tried to keep, you know, stay with the sponsors that started with me, with those smaller companies to provide that first-class customer service. There could not be a better example of that than ready-made resources. So whatever you need for your prepping, consider stopping by their website today. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. You know, I do a lot of talking around here about silver and gold, precious metals. There's the third class of precious metal that I think we also may need to make sure we have in stock as well. It's called copper jacketed letter ammunition. Without sufficient ammunition, your guns are nothing but really expensive clubs. And uh, if you're just going to have a club, you might as well go buy a baseball bat. If you want a, a firearm, you want it to be able to operate at optimal condition. You want to be able to operate optimal condition as its operator. Well, you need ammunition, not just so it's there when you need it, but so that you can train and practice with it. And we all know when we get to the range, you go through more ammo than you think you will. So check out Bulk Ammo for great pricing on exactly what they're advertising. Bulk Ammo, large quantities of the most common calibers at the best price with lightning-fast shipping. Next up, remember, you can connect with me. Best ways to do that online through social media. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, links at the website to all of those. Please get on our forum if you have not already done so. Uh, I don't even post to the forum a lot. It's my own forum, but I certainly read it all the time. I get a lot of great information on there. And what I've seen are thousands of members of this community connecting with each other, both off and offline, through relationships formed and information shared on our forum. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on forum, and you'll find your way there. Next up, remember you can support the show at 20 cents an episode by becoming part of the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to over 29 vendors now. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks. You get some video content that's available nowhere else. And remember, I'm constantly making to make, working to make that program better. I'm always looking for people to bring on board as the next vendor uh, that we can add that will bring new value to you guys or new content that we can add there for you. So uh, do consider joining it. Again, you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. And if you're buying stuff in the industry, if you're buying preparedness items, if you're buying gardening items, if you're buying tactical items, if you make that part of you know kind of your annual budget, the program absolutely does pay for itself. I had many people in Salt Lake tell me some of the best money they've ever spent has been on and through the member support brigade. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which again is uh, about the Peace Corps and what service in the Peace Corps is like. And uh, again, I have on the, the line Mr. Uh, Tom Hale, who's been a member of the Peace Corps, uh, spent two years doing that. Prior to that, he lived in Texas. Now he's back in Texas again. Uh, he's had a tremendous amount of knowledge and a tremendous amount of life-changing experience 
uh, as being a member of the Peace Corps. Hey, Tom, thanks for joining us today to share your experiences with us on the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much, Jack. Hi, Tom, could you just give people kind of the, the synopsis? Who is Tom Hale? Where are you from? You know, um, that type of thing. What are you doing now? I mean, you're, you're out of the Peace Corps now, so, so uh, kind of what was your background before and, and now after? Oh, well, I grew up in uh, Katy, Texas, and I had never really left Texas until I became drinking age. So I was in, in college and uh, was able to travel a little bit. And once graduating from uh, Lamar University in 2000, I started working as a computer programmer. had you know, various jobs uh, moving around every, every couple of years and stuff. And I just uh, got a little disenchanted with the, with the day-to-day grind of it i was you know had the house and the nice area and the friends and all that but just something was missing and so once i once i got married my wife wanted to do peace corps and i wanted to do peace corps based on uh, talking to other people that did peace corps and i was just like wow let's check it out let's do it it was at a great time in our life that we were able to just kind of cast off a lot of uh, material and uh, move on. We volunteered at various places before uh, our Peace Corps service started. It took about a year to get the paperwork done and the medical, and we ended up in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, with our group in a room in a hotel and uh, meeting people that we had no idea they would become lifelong friends. Very cool. You know, and I just had somebody come up to our booth in Salt Lake City and asked me why I include Peace Corps in the, the service discount for the MSB, uh, you know, with law enforcement and military. And, and my response was because when I was in Honduras, there were some folks that were in the Peace Corps that were about five miles from where we were, and as bad as we had it, they had it worse. Um, <laughs> and there were some people in the area that were somewhat dangerous. There were a lot of people that were just needing help and, and looking for help, and there were good people that were living there, but there was some danger in the area. We had guns and a, and a whole fortification. We could shoot back, and we had a, an infantry contingent, and these guys were just really on their own. And my feeling was not only were they in the same muck that we were, so to speak, helping the same people that we were, and in many ways doing with less than we had, uh, I have no doubt that when they left, the people in the area had a better view of the United States after they left. So, folks, if you want to know why I do that, that's exactly why. And I thought I'd share that with you guys that, that Tom's here. But what I wanted to ask you, Tom, is in your experience, is the Peace Corps mission effective and worthwhile? Uh, definitely. With uh, the three directives of uh, the, the Peace Corps, first being send over trained men and women to interested countries. Number, number two is to share, share what, what American is. You know, their, how do they view, view life? What's their day to day in America? And then the third directive, which I appreciate the opportunity right now, is to share about the people that uh, I, share, I served with, uh, the, the Malagasy. And Definitely in the, in the muck is a, is a good way of putting it. There are uh, various experiences uh, in, in Madagascar. You know, when you're walking around with a bunch of people carrying knives and shovels and all sorts of dangerous implements of, of death, if you watch them hunt, it's very, very interesting and uh, very rewarding. There was definitely you kind of stick out in that group, don't you? It's obvious that you're the one that's, as we say in Texas, you're not from around here now, are you, son? <laughs> very, very true, very true. Since I had very limited experience uh, uh, growing up, I used to watch TV, and um, and they would be speaking in a foreign foreign tongue, and I was like, well, they're just it's gibberish. They're just not speaking English. I had no idea of foreign languages, and then once I got to college and, and met. Uh, people that weren't American then it started started to really realize the, the differences in culture and, and perspective and points points of view. Do you think that's one of the reasons the Peace Corps requires somebody to have a college degree? I've always kind of found that as an, an unnecessary roadblock. Um, I, I looked at it as, as a service that I think that anybody can be educated to do, um, and, and I've always kind of had an issue with that. Well, I think there has to be a, a certain foundation or broadness of education uh, for the Peace Corps to, to accept someone. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, 
sectors that the Peace Corps uh, is in, you know, um, environment, health, education, even small business. And uh, countries, they can, they can um, get particular skill sets. Like uh, one country might only want MBAs. Uh, one country might only want PhDs. You know, so there is a, a very uh, good aspect of having a, a well-rounded, educated person to be dropped in these situations. Now, one thing they can't really test is the emotional stability kind of thing. And a lot of people uh, have a lot of uh, a lot of volunteers have issues that they have to work work through being isolated, uh, not speaking English for months at a time. Uh, my wife and I were lucky in that particular instance because we had we had each other. And, but it is it gets it gets tough. The isolation is tough. So, so you're sitting in Austin. And you're, uh, you're making probably decent money as, as a computer guy. And, uh, you say to yourself one day, I need to do something with my life more than this and see more than this. You hadn't really been that well traveled. And you decide on the Peace Corps and you're sitting there as a computer guy in Austin and, you know, Texas Silicon Valley basically. And what made you think you had something to offer these other folks uh, around the world? Well, uh, from my personality, it's like, uh, I like to kind of jump into the unknown, you know, it's like sink or swim. There's uh I wanted to go somewhere and see how they how they lived, kind of get outside of, of America, kind of kind of detox from American uh, uh materialism. And uh I thought that I could offer insight, uh maybe even a little bit of a larger perspective if gaining um a viewpoint outside of their own culture, kind of, you know, being outside of the box looking in. And I was really looking forward to the, the training that uh, Peace Corps Peace Corps offered. I mean, there's just a whole list for environmental uh, volunteers to get to go through from, you know, uh, from tree grafting, you know, we covered bees, permaculture was introduced, and uh, we were able to harvest corn and uh, rice and dry land farming, also in, in the wetland farming, even the basic skills of haggling, going to the market and, and haggling and uh, gardening and compost, of course, and, and uh, cleaning, cleaning fowl, the, uh, goose, chicken, ducks, and even uh, animal husbandry. And being, in, being an educated, fairly educated individual, picking up those skills it was very, very enticing. And then also even more so is being put in a situation where I could share that to those that are interested. It was very enticing, and I was very glad that I did it. So um, what did you think maybe the biggest benefit you got? What did you gain from two years? In, in uh, I think Madagascar is where you were for your entire uh, experience. Yes, in, in Madagascar, we traveled around Madagascar, so we got a good, good feeling of uh, the different regions and dialects. Some were very difficult to understand, but I'd say that the the biggest benefit that I got was uh, kind of a connectedness, uh, humanity, uh, how humanity humanity is connected. You know, it's we're all going through the human experience, uh, no matter our no matter what our origin of birth is, and uh, being able to see. One culture different from another culture gives a lot of insight uh, into one's culture. So into the American culture and uh, culture being kind of like the invisible hand, not of economics, but of course uh, of Americans' culture. It's like uh, more like a fist of, of culture, which will strike people down and keep them in line, kind of uh, social justice kind of thing and getting insight into that makes it a little bit easier to cope in American society. It's like understanding that uh, a lot of the issues that we have are solutions to problems from the past, and we just keep on propagating uh, a solution turns into a problem as we need to find another solution for the past problem and not getting, not getting uh, tied up in that downhill spiral. But just realizing that uh, can do with less. Being in Madagascar, we, there was no running water, no electricity. And we had to sometimes leave the village to go get vegetables 
And uh, when the boats wouldn't come, uh, vegetables weren't there. Hmm. So making do with what the locals are doing. I mean, they're surviving. They're doing it. Sure. You know, we're sure. Eating but wait a minute. Day. I mean, Tom, you're in the Peace Corps. Aren't you supposed to be one of these peacenik hippies all for all these social justice, Oakland and Chicago style? I mean, are you actually telling us that going over there and serving in that capacity taught you that maybe government fixing it with a fist isn't the way to go? Oh, definitely not the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. There's a softball for you, knocking out of the park. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's uh, many instances that we would travel around and we would see foreign aid. You know, uh, we went through one village and saw a bunch of people sitting outside of a big silo-looking thing, and uh, it was like, what are they doing? And seeing sacks of USAID, USA rice, and they're just sitting around waiting for the food to show up. And, uh, and so seeing, seeing people sitting outside of this, uh, silo thing waiting for, for rice to show up. And it wasn't even a lean time. And. But so if it's they, free, you might as well get in line, right? That's right. That's right. It's totally free getting in line. But then, uh, other instances where, where we saw the government aid just kind of fall, fall flat was, uh, another village I was on, I went on two medical missions as a, as an interpreter with uh, by the holy spirit and on one of those we were visiting small villages around and i saw canisters empty empty oil canisters fortified with vitamin a where is it now it's like a one one drop scoop sure. and sure. then um kind of up going up the highway uh, on the east side of of madagascar you see these old broken down rusted Tractors, relics of exporting the Green Revolution, you know, and the the area we were in was was very wet. There's no roads to to each of these. Um, I guess you'd say they're uh, rice fields, small rice fields, kind of on the hillside and things of that nature. And it was just, where's government then? Yeah, and I mean, from what I hear you saying, while you and your buddies are out in Madagascar teaching the people how to grow rice sustainably, foreign aid is dumping bags of dried rice on their doorstep. Right. It's just like... it's. It, I mean, nothing changes, right? Give a man a fish and feed him for a day, teach him to fish and feed him for his lifetime. Right, exactly. And that's, that's one, one pretty cool aspect of uh, Peace Corps is we're, we were taught to teach teachers to teach. And so these, these techniques you'd find, you'd go into villages and you were basically looking for, kind of as Jared Diamond des- describes in, um, in uh, collapse, you're looking for the, the big man. So the, the big man would be the influential member of, of that community. Not one that's elected, because usually they don't want to have anything to do with politics. And you, you find those influential members of society that people just naturally listen to. And you teach them the technique, you show them the benefit to it, and then they'll propagate it forward. They do your job for you. Yeah, I mean, I've listened to Lawton and Mollison from the permaculture world talk a lot about going in and doing things like that. And I kind of wanted to tell you a little story here and see if maybe you have anything that would relate or be similar to it. They talked about uh, Lawton, uh, Jeff Lawton talked about going to this one place somewhere in South America. And taking these people from a slash and burn agriculture system to a chop and drop. And basically going from annuals to perennial trees and bushes. I mean, they're in the tropics. I mean, it doesn't make sense to not uh, utilize and harness that type of stuff there. So they set them up and they explained everything and they got the big man on board, the guy that's like, you know, the leader within, so to speak. And they thought they had done everything right. And they came back a year later and everything was messed up. And the reason it was messed up is they weren't clear about the whole when to cut. So if you're going to cut for chop and drop, you do it in going into the rainy season so that uh, the stuff doesn't dry up, and so it's there on the ground, and so uh, the moisture accelerates the breakdown of the material, and that's what you do. And, and that way you, you, have, you lose your shade at the time of the year when you can afford to lose it. The trees coppice, and you're, you're back to canopy by the time you get into the dry season, and you've got that layer of mulch down. Well, since they were slashing and burning, they cut their stuff in, in the dry season. 
because that's when you would want to cut it to burn it. So they changed what they were doing, but the people cut the stuff at the worst time of the year, so they were kind of back where they started. And I think that like that's a learning experience about this you know, cross-cultural stuff that one little nuance can wreck a system. Oh, definitely. Definitely. We were, we were uh, teaching clay stoves. And make sure that you get the the right mixture of, of ash and uh, the 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 red clay, and getting that just right. And that was just those are instructions that have to be they have to be followed correctly. Our uh, we also did like it's um, I guess on Maza it's many many graphs, and they have to be done correctly. As in you you pick the top portion of the graph from the maniac that produces the big leaves that they would they would pound up and make uh, make a side dish out of. And you take the maniac uh, that goes goes in the bottom of the big tubers, and so that when you put them together, you get the best of both worlds. And so those little details they they had to have been uh, worked out ahead of time to to bring that that technique to the people because they have a lot of different varieties of, of maniac and. Getting the small tuber with the small leaves wouldn't work out real well, and so there was definitely a lot of exchange with um, with the, with the locals to get that straightened out. Yeah, it'd be a total failure if they went with the both dwarfs. Yeah, so I mean, and I guess I guess another thing maybe you guys are doing there, and I'm spitballing here, but I'm thinking you're probably going into these countries finding indigenous people that already know what the heck they're doing. And this was information everybody had. You're kind of restoring the knowledge, so you're probably learning as much as you're teaching. Oh, definitely. The uh, the preferred uh, rice playing uh, technique was SRI, and uh, it's a intensive. It's like um, square foot gardening for rice kind of thing. And that was that was developed up north in, in Madagascar, and the the Malagasy hadn't really picked it up. It was picked up more in Thailand. And to to bring that to reintroduce that technique, it was kind of a kind of a little culture shock for them because they have their way of doing it and that's the way it is. But to show them, you know, we we planted a field, we prepared and planted a field, and we got four times the yield. And you know, it kind of perked up their their eye their ears, and they started paying attention. And my wife, especially, really spearheaded uh, picking up, uh, grabbing the. Uh, the, the heads of the different little loose organizations to have a training to get them involved, to get them to try it and see it. And um, I don't think it really took off until uh, the big man, uh, who was our counterpart, started doing it. He really started seeing the benefit. And, and we've left since then. But they've, uh, he's, last I heard, he's still, he's still doing SRI. So with him spearheading it, I'm sure it'll be picked up. It makes me think of people like working in the cities, you know, uh, with gang groups and stuff like that. The only way they ever get any traction is to get buy-in from some of the people in the community that already have the respect. And to basically funnel everything through them versus go in and, and, and lecture as an outsider. Oh, totally. The, yeah, we would have to be uh, kind of initially, we, we would have to go around with our, our counterpart or his brother in order to even be heard. Kind of thing, because it's just you got to have the respect of um, the big man. So let's talk about some of the projects you did. We've kind of talked about uh, growing rice, but I have a whole list of stuff you guys did here. Uh, you, and you mentioned this one. You, so you were teaching these folks how to make clay stoves. Yes, it was really really simple. Just a, a clay ring, you know. Anything better than a three rock configuration would be better. So we did a, a ring, and that would give them fifty percent more efficiency with uh, with their fire and is they we we thought about migrating to uh, a two-pot method with a chimney but it was a little sophisticated for the rural area we had a number of people pick this up and especially effective for the uh, soup kitchens or the soupies they're like um, a little restaurant that they would have a huge pot and it would be uh, going all day because you never know when somebody will Will show up and want some want some soup, and so they would conserve a lot of, uh, of firewood by using one of these massive. Essentially, it's a clay ring. Sure. Yeah, you, you sit and you wonder how these people that live there with these resources around them don't see them uh, as resources. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to make a ring out of clay, 
but I guess that a lot of this stuff gets lost, and if you you grow up seeing somebody do something a certain way, you just keep doing it. The next one on your list here is uh, taro and cassava graphing. Uh, from what I know, taro is a root crop. It's like the uh, I think described as the potato of the tropics. So you're grafting that, or am I thinking of a different plant? No, it's actually the the manioc is what I meant to oh, okay. say. It's the manioc which I which I covered. The taro, taro being a root crop starchy, it's one of those go tos during lean times. They would have they would have the manioc, the taro, and the breadfruit. If you're, if you're familiar with the breadfruit, sure, uh, it grows on it goes on a tree. It's easily propagated, and it's if you eat that, it's like a brick in your gut. Okay, <laughs> it's like how's this gonna feel coming out? You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, they would they would create some kind of like a um, like a uh, like a Jello uh, coconut uh, paste almost, and a couple of tablespoons of that, you're done. It's like you don't <laughs> feel hungry at all. And, uh, but they they love the rice, and so they're, yeah. you know, they're the largest consumer of rice per capita in the world. Really, they, they can't grow enough rice, and they they prefer their local rice. But they, when we were there, they would get rice from Pakistan, and so the government would have to make sure they have enough contracts to feed their people. And uh, there, when they knew there was going to be some like really really lean times, they cut exports of Malagasy rice. Sure, to keep it to keep it in country. What's the rough population of Madagascar? It's not a place we usually think of. Right, I think it's a, like a little over 18 million. Okay. With over 87% rural. Okay. Yeah, so they're all spread out in the, the, the countryside. I mean, you can't go out and take a piss without eyeballs on you. <laughs> they are all over the place, and they are surviving. And it's it's really, really... So you're amazing. saying there's a high-density population, even in the rural environments, where in like country like the U.S., we have high density in the, in the urban environments and low density in a rural environment. Right, correct. I wouldn't have expected that. I, I always thought of Madagascar as like this open wilderness type place. So let's talk about some of the other stuff you guys did. You, you guys had quite a few permaculture type things you were doing there as well. Well, we had some some training, some uh, training in permaculture. There is uh, the way that they they trained. They would bring uh, like uh, one year volunteers to train the new, new the newbies. And there was a couple that trained us in permaculture, and the Intro to Permaculture book was available. That's when I first started hearing about it. And they talked about uh, locality of resources on your on your lot, and uh, primarily about compost. You know, you don't want to carry the compost all over the place. You want to make compost where you need it, but it needs to be convenient to where you're going to have your resources. Like, for instance, we we chunked. Uh, compost material out the window, and so it was it was really close. It was really tight. It was really convenient. And uh, utilizing manures and building building compost for uh, a tree nursery, we picked up a project for a tree nursery. So I was constantly making compost to fill little plastic pots to to uh, grow grow trees. And uh, one tree I was particularly proud of, of growing was the mangosteen the mangosteen um, uh, tree. So I was able to get a few of those out there. They have a lot of uh, health benefits, and uh, the Malagasy knew knew about that. And plus, they're they're really really tasty. One of my favorite fruits. And they're a huge yield too once the tree's mature. Yes, once it's yeah, definitely very very. So you guys did a, a tree nursery. I, I mean, I, I guess people wonder sometimes, like when you leave, what happens to that nursery? Well, it'd be picked up. So. Uh, a local farmers association picked it up. Uh, I was I was working with the the director who who lived just a few few doors down. He was kind of a renaissance man, you know. He 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 ran this farmers mark his farmer association. He was a rice farmer. He also had a little um, kind of uh, a little storefront where he sold little knickknacks and grains and oils and stuff like that. And he also he hauled uh, just a boatload of. Uh, they say red clay to to his little area, and he built a a bread oven, and he sold bread, and he was also very uh, very influential in, in in the church there, and he had his his family to take care of his kids and stuff, and and his wife, and he took over the Papinier. Well, okay, well, it's, I mean, and that's what I wanted people to understand that you guys 
are not going in and doing something. It's not a one-shot deal. You guys are setting up sustainable systems when you're doing this. It often makes me look around at my own country and and realize, from what I've seen being in the third world, a different part of it than you, but very, very similar mentality of the people, I would assume, that you go in and you show these people what to do, and there's like no resistance. If it freaking works, they'll do it, and, and, and they'll run with it, and they'll start teaching other people how to do it tomorrow. Um, sometimes you have that, um, that cultural uh, thing that they're attached to, and you have to break it. But the second you break it, and like you said, it's usually like the leader within that gets it broken. The second they see it work, they're done looking for reasons not to do it, and they're trying to figure out how to go like full tilt more with it, where in the United States... We'll get some city official coming in saying, you know, that that dirt in that old abandoned lot might not be safe to grow food in. Uh, here, eat this pesticide-laden apple instead. Oh, definitely true. Another another thing that we were really focusing on was gardens around the house, and and so they have their little, I guess, their little shack. I guess you'd say it's made out of of robin leaves. Which is interesting. It's a palm actually, but anyway, they'd have an area around their house that they would want absolutely bare. Like they would dig up the grass, they would make sure there's nothing right around their house. Whereas, whereas us, we have yards, right? We want something green around us. But they, they have green all around them. They want something not green around them. But we were really trying to focus on, hey, grow a garden, keep it close. That way, you don't have to worry about thieves. You can, you can water if it needs watering. You can weed it if it needs weeding, and uh, we had we had a, a friend pick that up, and uh, she was actually doing really well with it. And so it was, it was like, all right, you know, they know it works, and they're she's doing it. Because when they do that, they clear that even the area just around the house. They're creating erosion issues. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We would we would travel um, to this this other village. We were actually doing a, a kind of site assessment. Another another thing about the. The way the Peace Corps works is someone in a village would do a petition. They would they would uh, fill out an application. We go to Peace Corps. Peace Corps would see if there's volunteers around that area that could go and visit, do a site assessment, filling out some paperwork, send that back in, and then Peace Corps themselves would come out, talk to the local officials, talk to the the sponsor, see the house, see if it's adequate, and then make it make a decision on if a volunteer could be could be placed there. So there's a Couple of back and forths there, and so we were doing the uh, site assessment. And uh, one particular time, because we went back a couple of times, it was rainy, and the place that we were staying is at Bertans. We were staying at his place, and his 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 cabinet, his uh, outhouse, was down kind of below his house, and he he lived in the wet clay, uh, red clay area, and it was slippery as all get out. So you know, if you got an urge at midnight. You're taking your life in your own hands. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, they try to little cut little steps and stuff like that, but, of course, it just erodes and erodes and erodes and erodes. And so it was, yeah, it was calamity. Well, um, another thing I, I see that you guys worked with, and I know there's a lot of deforestation problems uh, in Madagascar. Uh, I think that they've reversed a lot of it, but there's still, it's still an issue, and it's something that can go be back, back to. Then all these people are using wood to cook with all the time. You guys did some work with them on solar cooking as well? Yeah, well, there were some projects definitely in Peace Corps, especially up north. They, uh, they did a, a lot of, a lot of solar, solar, uh, projects. But the, the one thing about, about solar and, you know, in the Peace Corps literature and stuff, it, uh, they showed a picture of uh, a bunch of wood sitting in one of the, sitting in a uh, uh, solar cooker while the person's cooking on a three rock system, and uh, it was kind of a big kind of technological leap for for the solar for where for where we were. But uh, one thing that we got a pretty good response of during during training with our host mother was it's a hot basket. This thing is it's great. So you've got a basket it's full of like rice holes. Uh, like pillows of rice holes, and so you can put your your hot pot. So you start some rice. So you might cook it for five minutes, and you stick it in this insulated bot basket where it's insulated on all sides, top and bottom, and then you just wait. And then after an hour and a half or so, it, w- it would be cooked. So then you use a you know a tenth of the wood necessary because you're bringing it to temperature, and you're not using fuel to hold the temperature. You're using insulation. Right. 
It sounds like you learn all kinds of survival skills being in a third world nation where people don't have all the systems of support. Call me nuts, but that's what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, true. Just to kind of go down the list where, where we were at, it seemed fairly fortunate. We had a concrete slab, and uh, then the rest of the building, the rest of the house was kind of traditional, which is made from um, the traveler's palm. So this palm is just amazing. So from from the broad leaves... They can split them and they they put them on like um, like roofing tiles, and then the the walls are made from like the spine of of those palm leaves, which are cut and dried and they're they're stood on end kind of horizontal, and they form they form the walls. And then traditionally the floors are made from the the trunk of that tree where it's split, dried, and then split to lay flat. And so from this one uh, traveler's palm, they can get 90% of their house. Unbelievable. It's, it's really amazing. And so that's what we had. And just from, from day one, uh, I was able to get a 55-gallon plastic barrel. Uh, the, the volunteers before us had one, which they used for like uh, just a bucket shower. And then I talked to my, uh, my partner, and I said, hey, I need bamboo. You know, the gargantuan big bamboo they cut in half and they chisel out the little portions in the middle and stuck it up so that it would catch the rainwater. And it just filtered right into that 55-gallon um, barrel. So basically I, you made rain gutter out of bamboo. Right. Yeah. And, and so I had that 55-gallon barrel up about two or three feet, and I had an extra spout from our, like our Berkey, our Berkey is like a Berkey uh, water filter, and um, I just plumbed it, and so I had running water. Unbelievable! And I mean, I'm having a dumb moment with the bamboo uh, rain gutter. Uh, it it, it kind of like just screams out. This is what I was, you know, one of the things I was made to do. And I think that when we live in a world of Home Depots, we lose that. Um, I know I gave away to a guy when we were breaking down the camp in Honduras. We had, you know. Uh, different stuff that we just want to take back. And one of the things, we had like a stick. It was like a 10-foot stick, a half-inch PVC pipe. And you don't do a lot with one. I mean, because you're not going to go down the street and get another one or a coupler. But I gave this dude that stick of pipe, and he was really happy about it. I mean, getting another rain barrel, I guess it puts it in perspective that these things that we take for granted, I mean, half-inch PVC is dirt cheap. But if you don't have it, you got to make do with what you do have. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Which uh, one traditional method of carrying water that the Malagasy had? They, there was this like giant bird that was on the island. So people, people, the Malagasy have only been at Madagascar for fifteen hundred years. So with evolution, there was a a period of time that these animals evolved without humans. So they didn't evolve any defensive mechanisms. So when humans show up, you know these big birds like, hey, what are you? And then dead. You know, and also there's, uh, <laughs> there's like so many, uh, types of species of large lemur dead, you know? So the, the Malagasy, they originally, they had these eggs, these huge eggs, kind of like bigger than an ostrich egg that they would carry water in. And then they migrated to bamboo. So they would use bamboo as a, as a container. You know, it's all about the container, right? Sure. And, and so, and then now they have plastic containers and metal containers and all that stuff. But they had everything they needed right around. And even even today, you know, it's like if I if I need something to tie something down, I look down for some kind of uh, vine or something that I could use to tie something up with. Sure. You know, it's all, if you need something, start looking around. And that that's exactly the way they did they did things. So if they need to carry something, they look around and be, oh, here's here's some good cordage from you know bark of a tree kind of thing, and they would use it. And when they didn't need it, they would throw it they throw it back. So it was on the ground. You know, maybe some it's biodegradable. It becomes part of the soil at that point. So when I was in Central America, you mentioned birds. Like one of the like real staples to existence for people in these remote areas were poultry. Uh, down there it was chickens and ducks, and most of the ducks down there were the uh, Muscovy ducks because they're actually native to the area. Um, did you see a lot of use of poultry uh, for sustainability in Madagascar? Oh, definitely. Definitely, especially the chickens. They were, like, prehistoric looking. You know, they were, like, scrawny and scrappy, and you couldn't kill them with an axe. Well, yeah, I guess you could, but they would run around and in droves, 
and they would just wreak havoc. You had to have some kind of fencing up to to keep some vegetation alive. And, you know, here comes a mama hen with her 10 chicks, right? Because since they're free range, they would lay lay eggs and the owners would hardly ever find them. And so the, the chickens would run amok and uh, they were meant for survival. And so during lean times, they could find their, their chickens. And the way they would kind of keep them close is they would call them and give them rice every once in a while just to train them. So the, you know, they wouldn't lose them forever. But they know their chickens. There was a, there was a particular instance where this one woman was walking through the, uh, the bazaar, the bazaar, and she started yelling and screaming at this one guy who had a chicken, you know, dead chicken up. And, um, the reason was because she recognized her chicken. He stole it. So it's like rustling back in the old west, you know. They put your brand on. These people don't need a brand. They actually know their particular strain or individual chickens. Right. And they had wow. they had chickens, ducks, geese, uh turkeys. The turkeys were pretty funny. Uh, the name of a turkey was uh let's see if I can say it's because that was the name of the sound <laughs> of the turkey. It was it was foreign, right? Cuz they didn't know the name of it, so they just made it up. And so they had, yeah, they had definitely a lot of, a lot of foul. Yeah. And yeah. I don't, I don't want everybody to think that it was all roses over there though, cause this is all cool stuff. You, you saw some stuff go on over there. We'll kind of finish up on, cause I think it teaches us some things about, you know, collapsed society and some of the things we may be headed for if we don't straighten up. Uh, you mentioned to me that you saw kind of cities just start taxing people and do it a little bit differently than we're accustomed to. Oh, yes. It's, um, I think our partner uh, was was starting to starting to pay taxes, and I don't know if it was uh, I think it was a top down initiative, and it was kind of sold as as being you know good for the city, for these people that have money to to contribute, and um, it's kind of as I say it's kind of a, it's that first fall of of liberty and freedom, you know, and really tugging on that. Uh, what do you, what do you would say? It's kind of like that. Um, you're doing so well. Why don't you provide kind of kind of mentality? Oh, and, class uh, warfare. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, 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 it's like the way I saw. So um, they were voting. So there was like so many men that came together. One guy had a cap, and they all started picking up rocks. And I was like, What are they doing? They're picking up rocks. And uh, three of them kind of left off to the side. And the others, the other, I think it was about 20 of them, were, were putting rocks in hats. And I was like, what are they doing? It's like, oh, they're voting on their sheriff. And so it's like, that's how they did it. You know, it's like they know each other, they respect each other, and they know who, who they want to kind of govern over them. And to introduce some kind of taxation it didn't really make any sense. You know, there's a couple of thousand people in the string of, of villages. And so it was a, it was a, it was kind of a sad, sad sight to see, from my perspective. And they were, you said they were basically like, "Show me your house and go, dude, you owe us money." <laughs> That's right. I don't, I don't know. I, you know, with taxation, I think it's it's quite it's quite funny to me if you think back to let's say you know some guy out in the in the wilderness this is back in America. So if you think about some guy out in the wilderness in America, or actually someone in in, Malaga, in Madagascar, and some guy just knocks on the door and says, "Hey, you owe me money," and if you don't pay. I got a couple of guys over here that'll put you in jail. It's just like, what? What are you calling? What's this taxation thing? You know, when it first started, it just seems brutal to me. It's legalized extortion. We've just made it comfortable for people. Right. You've also mentioned that you guys had problems over there with theft, uh, vanilla and produce specifically. Oh, there was one death uh, that that occurred over vanilla, and uh, I think it was up. It was in our region. Because our, our partner, he does a lot of vanilla, and he he started putting locks on the door. He's got his metal doors, and he was he was really taking some precautions. And uh, there's something something less severe was this one guy was caught uh, stealing, and uh, it was I think he stole some food or something like that. And all the women were around him, and 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 like the sheriff was there. And then the sheriff, you know, the women are all squawking at him and stuff like that. And then the sheriff just goes, okay. And then 
then they told the guy to run, and all these women just started beating on him with their shoe. <laughs> the guy that's, was, their, that's their discipline system. Right, and the guy had to run through the village. And, and get beat on. So not only did he get punished quickly and sufficiently, he, he, it was kind of like the old thing where we used to put people in the stocks. He was known now as being a thief. Right. Yes. Because over there you don't want to be in prison. So during the medical missions, we we visited the prisons, uh, both male and female. And the, the, the problem with the you know developing country, third world country, is they don't have the resources to feed the people in prison. And so it was up to... Uh, friends and family to feed that person in that prison or they would only get like uh, very minute portions and it was it was hard to see it was really it was, I was really glad to be able to to provide some medical service in, in my capacity well um, I mean I think people are getting kind of a new view of Peace Corps and what it's all about something we share in common you mentioned road construction um, that's what I went to Honduras to do. We built a road about 10 miles long where there formerly was a, uh, a path. My experience is that it is one of the most meaningful things you can do for a society because it brings them the ability to be part of their overall uh, economy because it brings stuff in and takes stuff out. And it's something that's so basic to us in the United States. You, there is not a town in America you can't drive a car to. And there's no such thing. It just doesn't exist, um, even if you have to take some dirt roads. But in a lot of countries, a road is a luxury. I mean, was, is that because I've never been to Madagascar. Would you say there's places in Madagascar where that is the case? Where the road is a luxury? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So we were, we were on one of the main uh, highways, right, which basically is a wide dirt road kind of thing. And um, going going from where we were down down south, it was fairly treacherous. It was rocky. It was hilly. It was slippery. We had uh, six river crossings that you had to wait for the tide to rise in order to get across. They had recently had um, new kind of big concrete uh, ferries. But moving up north uh, to, to Montsetra from where we were, we had a number of river crossings where they had bamboo rafts. And so when you're, when you're with the car in the bamboo graph and the, the water is coming up to your ankles and you're like, wait, the raft is submerged. How are we going to make it? And, uh, getting across to these, these roads that are rutted, gutted and hard to pass. You get, you get, uh, stuck. We, we got stuck on a bridge. They had to cut the bridge in order to, um, get across. And, uh, the roads, roads were pretty, pretty treacherous. There was, you know, I think one, one time we noticed that in our village that everyone was out with their shovels and they were there to kind of, kind of cut, cut the road, kind of make it look nice. And then, uh, there was a kind of a, a, a guideline where big, huge, really tall, uh, Coconut trees were going to be a hazard in the next uh, cyclone, so they had to be cut. And so they cut it, and then all the villagers, they came out, and they, they prepared that tree trunk, and they drug it. So it probably took 20 guys, and we drugged that thing to to create kind of a pedestrian pathway where the, where the road took a big dip, and it was it was always wet. And so they had to do their own road construction, and even – Moving about in between a bunch of villages where we did some work, we would come against up against people that would rope the road off, and they would be working the road, and they would just ask for uh, a donation. So you give them a little donation for for rice or whatever, and they just keep working, and they're just making sure that they're they're funneling the water correctly so it doesn't keep eroding the road. So because it's that important to them that they're willing to go do it. I I only ever saw one thing like that. In my life, and it was one guy. Uh, in Panama City, there were always people, wherever you went, there was somebody panhandling or selling something that was really worthless, and they were just basically saying, I'm trying to do something so you give me some money. Then there was this dude, there was this road that came out of the backside of Fort Kobe and went along Veracruz Beach, and it was like a back way to the Bridge of Americas. And there was this dude, he got a shovel and a wheelbarrow, and there was potholes everywhere. And this dude would show up every day with his shovel, and he'd go off in the woods, and he'd shovel dirt and rock and gravel, and he'd fill in holes. And it was about a 10, 12-mile stretch. And that dude was there every day, 
And when he got to the end of the road, it was already starting their road at the other end, and he'd just start back at the beginning. And he did it every day for two years I was there, and people would just pull over and do some halves or whatever and throw him a couple bucks. And it always struck me as odd why, like, nobody else ever showed up unless maybe he had it, you know, like, you know, he had a pretty good set of pipes on him on the arms from uh, doing that all the time. He might have been protecting his territory, but it was a 12-mile road. And I I've never seen anything else like that. So you've seen where, like, it's a community event. Oh, yeah, definitely. But also, hey, Jack, just just imagine all the panhandlers, all the, the people on the side of the corner, uh, on the corners asking, begging for money. If no one gave them money, what would they have to do to make money? Would Whatever they, they can figure out, right? Yeah, would they be fixing the roads? Would they be cleaning up trash? Would they be planting trees? I don't know. But giving them money doesn't give them the opportunity to innovate and adapt, and that's a shame. I'll tell you, I've got a road that leads up to my place, and if people want to start showing up and filling in potholes on it, I'll probably stop and give you a dollar every day on the way out. Um, I, I do think that that is actually a business model, that people – I mean, we pay taxes for roads. I'd rather pay the guy building the road uh, than pay the government and let them waste 90% of it and then give 10% to the guy that builds the road or the Chicago crime syndicate family that owns the company that builds the road, right? I mean – I. I, it just it, it, it dumbfounds me that as little as they have in the rest of the world, they actually come up with more efficient models. But that's probably why they come up with more efficient models. Right, true. Whereas, you know, where we'll give thirty-two billion uh, for a USAID to do to do uh, foreign relief work or whatever, and it's just like, how much does it cost to hand out rice? What else are they doing? <laughs> you, you sound like Brandon when he went down to Haiti and they took like eight grand down there and they built two wells and put in a, a water purification system with that. And he said that the uh, Salvation Army got like $130 million and they, they never even saw a single Salvation Army sign uh, the entire time they were there, let alone saw them do anything. Oh right, so yeah, I mentioned I mentioned the, the medical missions I went on. So I went on two, one each year, and we would go around in these small villages and and see hundreds and hundreds of people. And a lot of times we're just handing out multivitamins, and, you know, doing it doing a check to make sure everything's okay. And and then other other times they're they're doing ultrasounds on on. Um, on new mothers or pregnant pregnant women, you know, checking the checking the health and status of their of their babies, making sure they're getting prenatal care, and then uh, saving lives. They actually, they they uh, emergency care. What do you say? It's like emergency surgery for a few of them just to save their lives. And these people are boots on the ground. They're their own funding. They paid for it out of their own pocket, and they've got they got some funding from. Various various churches to go out there and actually do good. It's just it was it was really really rewarding to be a part of. Well, Tom, um, fascinating stuff. Um, I know you could probably talk for another hour if I'd let you. Uh, you're Definitely. always welcome to come back on the show and, and talk about any of this stuff. What I'm hoping is that people have a new view of what the Peace Corps is all about. Like I said, those two guys that we knew that were in Honduras five miles away from us, they had it rougher than we did in a lot of ways, and they didn't have the meaning, means of defense that we did. Kind of what I'd like to finish up with, though, is when you look around our country here today, um, not just the – there is some real cultural value in these other societies. I think they have better social relationships and all. But what, what I take away from it often is I look at how dependent we are, and I think if one system fails – a lot of what those people have to deal with, we'll have to deal with. I mean, do you kind of feel the same way? Right, that uh, my life in Madagascar might be a future viewing of America? That's what I'm asking, yep. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, there, they had their, their stable crops, stuff that they didn't want to eat, but they would eat if nothing else was available. And they tended to those. Uh, they... The mountain potatoes, the the manioc, the high starch, the the belly fillers. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of meat in our village. Ever every once in a while, there might be um, might be cow. Oh, twice a year, there might be pig, and uh, and it was expensive. It was very expensive, and uh, so they relied on essentially weeds and rice, lots of rice, and they'd have their bitter greens and their salty broth, 
and that's what they would eat three times a day. And there, there are even more, uh, less fortunate, there is even less fortunate individuals out there that only had bananas. We heard stories when we were, we were hiking across the Maswalas, uh, for a week that, um, there's people out in the bush that only have potato, only have bananas. And if they can, they'll cook them. And so, I don't know if we'll get that bad off, but you gotta have your staples. You gotta have something to fall back on for food. If you got food in your belly, you can look for something else. Yeah, I've always said if you have food today, you can find food for tomorrow. But if you don't have food today, you've got a real problem. Right. It, it, it's amazing what you'll do if you're if you if you have to. But when you're on an empty belly, it's hard to do much of anything. Um, definitely, I thank you for your service, and I thank you for being on the show with us today. I appreciate the opportunity, Jack. All right, folks, uh, with that, I am going to wrap up. I do hope you have a new view of the Peace Corps. I, I know I've talked to some of you guys that think they're just a bunch of ponytail uh, uh, hippie types, and uh, what they really are is people trying to do more good around the world, and we could use a little bit more of that. And the the, the, the value of the experience there, I think a lot of you guys – that email me that are 18, 19, 20 years old or young college graduates to say, you know, I, I like the idea of the military, but I'm really not sure it's right for me. This might be something you want to look into. And I also think it makes sense for, uh, as you're building your communities out there, whether it's through your church or your neighborhoods or whatever, seek these guys out that have done this stuff. Uh, they make pretty dadgone good real community organizers, right? Not somebody that lines up and marches down the street with a sign asking for social justice. I was actually really pleased to hear Tom's view on that today, and I'm glad that got a chance to come out. So uh, take all this stuff, and, and hopefully we'll get Tom back on the future to talk about some more specific things. In fact, if you have any of the kind of laundry list stuff that we went through today uh, that you'd like me to get him on and go deeper into, whether it's permaculture or mud ovens or clay ovens or whatever, let me know and we'll try to do that. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Tom Hale, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Shot heard round the world Called up those British bastards That put me to the sword Well I died a lonely subject A king and monarchy Yeah I'm the first American Who made this country free What are you done with my country? What are you done with the founding tree? I gave my life Pay me. Well, I hit that beach of running with an M1 in my hand. Before I got to cover, I was face down in the sand. Well, I'm proud to die on D-Day, and I'd do it all again. The time has shown me death and war, breach politics and sin. What are you done with my country? Pay me. Yeah, I keep looking down, see it all go wrong. My blood mixed with the dirt that the Yankees call their home. Well, I never would have done it if I knew what they would do. The land I fought and died for, the land that I gave you.
side They're pulling for us all Who live free because they died To those of you who've turned your back On the land in which you live When you go to meet your maker What answer will you give? What have you done with my country? What have you done with the founding tree? I gave my life so you could be free And this is how, yeah this is how You repay me 